So I have a little bit of a problem. Um, as I shared last week, we will be using the, the history and experience and the, the story of the Ephesian church as kind of an outline for the sermon series. And I'm, I, I remain quite excited about that. Um, one of the uh, purposes of so doing is that we might avoid some of the pitfalls experienced by those brothers and sisters in the Ephesian church, especially the one we looked at last week um, about losing their first love and taking their eyes off of Jesus, taking their, their mind and not remembering him. And, and truthfully, if we get nothing else out of this series, except that we always remember our first love, Jesus, and that we never take our eyes off who he is and what he's done, and then we remember that even more and we let that transform us as we talked last week, then candidly, the sermon series will be a success if, if that's it. But hopefully we'll get more out of it. Um, I, I also have, and this is part of the problem, is that I have a desire not to preach two-hour sermons. And that's unless you want me to. There <laughs> And uh, the, the problem comes in that the scripture and the text that we're addressing, so I'm just taking them as they come, um, and, and many of them just kind of run into each other, and, and it's difficult to know where to stop without keeping you here till the evening. Uh, and this came to bear as I was working on, on this week's message, as, because I had mentioned last Sunday that I was going to cover from Acts 18, verse 18, to 19, verse 12, and my plans were unrealistic. Can't do it. Uh, there's simply too much there. So, so this week, I'm only going to cover part of what I intended to cover, uh, namely the events immediately before, during, and after Paul's first visit to Ephesus. Next week, I'm going to cover the story of about Apollos and the, the 12 disciples of, of John the Baptist, and then take a brief look at the exciting stuff that was happening in the church in Ephesus once they got the complete gospel, once once it really took off. I'm going to be gone the following Sunday, and Bob Durier will be here uh, to share with you about the value and the worth and the cost of the kingdom of God. Something, while it's not coming out of this, this series, it ties in because that's something that the Ephesian church was learning and experiencing at that point. Then when I return uh, the first Sunday in April, the Sunday before Easter, uh, we will look at the, the story of the Jewish exorcists and their experience of messing with stuff they shouldn't be messing with, and, and they were just not prepared for that. And it's a great story in, in, in which we will also see um, kind of a demonstration of some of the stuff that, that, that Bob's going to be talking about the prior week. So that's just kind of the flow of, of where we're going to be going. But today, uh, we're only going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. So pray with me, and then I will read our text. Heavenly Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds and our ears to, to your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that these words on this paper, that the words that go through the air, the words that are heard and received will be words from you, that you will use them for your glory, that we will see Jesus, that your kingdom will be built. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So our text, uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. So Paul still remained a good while. This is in Corinth. He's staying in Corinth. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer time with him, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, and he went down to Antioch, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, uh, in order, strengthening all the disciples. So that is our text. Paul had uh, just finished a very dynamic ministry in Corinth, during which he met his two traveling companions, Priscilla and Aquila, who accompanied him to Ephesus. This husband and wife team were tent makers. That was their trade. These two were Jews who had been ordered out of Rome by the emperor Claudius as part of this ethnic cleansing that Rome was doing, and they eventually settled in Corinth. Paul, who was also a maker of tents, went to meet with them after his arrival in Corinth, maybe because of their common trade, maybe specifically being led by the Spirit, maybe to console with fellow Jews who were experiencing hardship at the hands of the Roman government. Anyway, as Paul and Priscilla and Aquila made their tents in Corinth, Paul explained the gospel to them, discipled them, and even, most likely unknown to either of them, prepared them to be the first pastors of the church of Ephesus that had, and this is important to note, a church that probably had not even been conceived in the minds of men at that point. We will be looking uh, more at Priscilla and Aquila um, next week, and a little more today, but before I do that, I want to note how this all came to be, this, this church in Ephesus. Sincrea is a uh, port city, uh, six miles from Corinth, and was a natural place for Paul to catch a ship that would take him across the Aegean Sea, and this is really important, to a place other than Ephesus. What I mean by this is that Paul was not headed primarily to Ephesus. He was headed to his home church in Syria, in, in Antioch, which meant it was necessary to pass through Asia, through the region that is western Turkey, and that's where Ephesus is, and that's what brought him there. Ephesus was merely a place he was passing through. Ephesus simply wasn't a major part of his agenda, and this is evidenced by Paul leaving behind what appears to be and would become a very fruitful field. Yet Paul was determined to continue on his journeys and get home for the feast um, and for some other things, which meant he had to move on, which he did. And he just left Aquila and Priscilla behind, and, and he didn't give them any certain plans. 
that he's going to come back. And, and this is actually kind of amazing when you think about it. One of the most important churches in the New Testament, the one that we arguably have more information about and references to and connections with Timothy and John and than any other church in the New Testament, was founded by Paul on his way somewhere else, almost as a tangential diversion. And, and the point I want us to get out of that simple little narrative is that sometimes we might think these diversions in our lives are not that important. In fact, many times it's these diversions, these unexpected stopovers of life that turn out to be really important. And this, just this narrative of Ephesus gives us a perfect example of that. So the challenge is to remain faithful even when your path is diverted or you end up in a stopover somewhere other than you'd planned. Now let's take a, a look at what Paul did in Sincrea. We're going to look at this a little more. Um, right before he got on the boat uh, with Aquila and Priscilla and sailed across the, Ase uh, the Aegean Sea, um, because what he did is, is kind of weird. Um, and, and perhaps you've read this uh, a million times, like I have, and you never really stop to think about it, but it's important. And it's in verse, um, it'd be 18. This is the scriptures, this is the holy word of God. And he had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. Now, that, that to me is kind of a strange, you know, what's going on there? And, and, and we're told after the fact that he got his hair cut off that he did it because of a vow. But that really doesn't help us. Uh, in fact, the more we look at the issue of Paul getting his hair cut, the, the, the more interesting it gets. So he did it because he was under a vow. A Jewish vow. Now, doesn't that seem a little fishy to you? What, what was Paul doing with Jewish rituals? I thought all that ended with the cross. And in, if my memory serves me, uh, didn't Paul rather routinely talk about being free from the law, uh, particularly all the additional rituals and ceremonies that were added to the law, which would include vows and haircutting rituals and feasts, which he was headed to? And it just seems kind of weird that he was doing this thing. I mean, wasn't it this the stuff that he referred to as the law of sin and death? Yep, uh, yep, that, that's this Paul. And yet here he's doing a Jewish ritual. Why? Part of understanding this comes from looking at what he did as soon as he arrived in Ephesus, which is the first thing he almost always did in any city he got to. He went to the Jews. He met and reasoned with the Jews in their synagogue. We see this repeatedly, most recently in what's recorded in the prior chapter in what happened in Corinth. And he would do that in each city until they either kicked him out of the synagogue 
or he left because of their obstinacy, which is what happened in Corinth. You see, Paul was a Jew, and he loved the Jews. And he desperately wanted the Jews to hear the gospel of Jesus. And, and he would do whatever was necessary, as long as it wasn't against the command of God, whatever was necessary to see as many heard as possible. And this Jewish ritual, this vow, and was just part of that. And while maybe a bit of a bother, while he thought it was unnecessary, it was related to his desire to reach the Jews. You um, may or may not know this about me, but I don't drink alcohol. Uh, my reasons are many, and we can discuss that later if you're interested. And for full disclosure, I don't think there's anything wrong with drinking alcohol in moderation with Thanksgiving, but that's not the point. Anyway, back when I made the decision to not drink, I was in high school, and there was a whole bunch of stuff going around about whether or not it was even possible to drink alcohol and be a Christian. I absolutely thought, and I still do, that the scriptural evidence is yes, it is possible. However, a number of my Christian friends reached the conclusion that it was not possible to drink alcohol and be a Christian. And anyone who did drink alcohol was not even worthy of listening to. And it was this last part that motivated my decision. I decided that I would not drink alcohol, which would have disqualified me from having their ear, even though I absolutely thought that drinking alcohol was okay. In a way, it was kind of a lot of hullabaloo because none of us were over the age and we really couldn't drink anyway, but, but skip over that. The point is that my choice to not drink is similar to why Paul did what he did. For him, the issue was simply the advancement of the gospel with those he loved, the Jews. And to reach a Jew, you needed to be a law-abiding, ritual-respecting Jew. His cutting his hair was a clear indication that he was a devout Jew and that he was not disrespecting the law, nor had he tossed the law out the window, as some people would later accuse him of. But wait a minute. I thought Paul did toss the law out, saying that there was no reason to follow any of it. No, he didn't say that. In fact, he even, a few chapters earlier with Timothy, ironically, who becomes the future pastor of Ephesus, uh, had Timothy circumcised. But wait a doggone minute. What's going on there? Wasn't Paul the one who made such a big deal about circumcision and the, the Judaizers demanding that Christians follow the law? Didn't he and Peter get into it, related all this stuff, Jewish rituals and dietary laws? And didn't his insistence that one did not need to follow the Jewish law and customs eventually lead to that Jerusalem council that we read on about earlier in Acts and addressed, that addressed the whole issue that resulted in a, in a ruling that circumcision and other Jewish laws were not in any way, shape, or form necessary for salvation and faithful obedience to Christ? Yep, that's the same Paul. Turn with me to Acts 
16, 1 to 5. This is when uh, Paul meets Timothy. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed she was a Christian, but his father was Greek. He, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, that Jerusalem council I just talked about. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number. The point is that, that Paul was determined that nothing would stand in the way of his desire to communicate the gospel to the Jews, even if it meant having Timothy circumcised as an adult male, mind you, or cutting his hair on his way home during, or, or so that he could preach and go into the synagogues or, or going through ritual purification ceremonies or following feast days or uh, even paying for a ritual observance, Jewish observance, when he arrives in Jerusalem a little bit later. The point is that Paul was not going to let anything get in the way of his proclamation of the gospel and his desire to reach the Jews. And his way involved going head-to-head with Jews, first as a guest in their synagogues in each new city he went. And it meant following some rituals. Rituals he knew meant nothing. He would do them, not for his sake, and that's really important, not for his sake, but for their sake. And yet he did not shy away from the truth. Here again, verse 4, uh, 16.4, And as they went, they delivered, went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to which, um, to, decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So what was this decision that he is referencing right after he had Tim- Timothy circumcised? And, and this is an oversimplification of the conclusion of the Jerusalem council, but I'm going to kind of do it. Converts to Christ do not need to follow Jewish laws. Jewish laws and circumcision are not necessary for salvation or faithfully following Jesus. And followers of Jesus should abstain from sinful and confusing behaviors. It sounds like he's saying you don't follow the Jewish laws. And yet, he's cutting his hair, he's having Timothy circumcised. That is what Paul said, but only after that message, but only after the Jews welcomed him into their synagogue and he proclaimed the gospel. Paul walked the line he was determined not to unnecessarily offend the Jews on stuff that he knew with absolute certainty did not matter, particularly related to issues of salvation and obedience to Christ, such as circumcision, haircutting, vows, and yet he never compromised on the truth. In Ephesus and in the other synagogues, when he visited on, which he visited on his way back to Antioch, 
What the, what the Jews in those cities saw was an observant Jew, and they welcomed him. And he did not compromise on anything, and the gospel spread. So before I move on from that point, um, let me ask, is there something you need to do or not do that really doesn't matter that might help your ministry with those whom you encounter, whom God's placed you in the midst of? If you work in a place that is full of Seahawk fans and you happen to be a crazed 49ers fan, would it be a good idea to wear your 49ers jersey on their Seahawk day? You're free to do so. And I'm pretty sure you'd build a whole bunch of bridges that day. That's just kind of a silly example, but let me give a more important one. If you are in a workplace surrounded by liberal anti-Christian people, among whom God has placed you purposefully in their midst, and you happen to be a Republican, how important is it for you to wear a t-shirt that says, I'm a Republican? You may be. If you really want to close the doors to reaching those folks, wear your shirt. Should the issue of sexual destruction of children in the guise of being progressive or the murder of unborn children come up, you will not even get a breath out before they shut you down. And for what it's worth, even if you win that argument, you're not going to win any souls. More important than this, though, mention Jesus while wearing that shirt and watch their heads explode. The fact is that you would simply be able to say more, participate in the dialogue longer, and speak, most importantly, the truth of God without distraction longer if you didn't wear the shirt. They may shut you down eventually, as the Jews eventually kicked Paul out of the synagogue, but he did reach some. Next, I want to look at the simple statement that, that Paul left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. Hopefully, by so doing, it will help us if, we, if God ever calls us to do something that we are wondering if it's too much, too soon. Paul was in Corinth for about a year, a year and a half. Even if Priscilla and Aquila became believers on the very first encounter they met Paul, they were still maybe only a year old in the Lord when Paul left them there, alone, to deal with not only their new faith and their questions, but he left them as the only believers in a major and very important city. And while there might have been a few other believers at that point who had heard him preach in the synagogue and who were maybe a few days old in the Lord, the fact is that Aquila and Priscilla were babes. And Paul was already dragging these two along to another land, and then he leaves them there in a place, in a place he himself wasn't even prepared to stay, and he also wouldn't even promise that he's going to come back. Aquila and Priscilla are probably going, 
holy smokes, what have we signed up for? Didn't, didn't we just finish moving to Corinth? Doesn't he know that we're like just new Christians? And, and now we're starting all over in Corinthians, all, and, in uh, Ephesus all by ourselves? And, and, and while they might have been devout Jews before Paul met them, now, now that they have the, the full gospel and an understanding of who, who Jesus is and, and what he did, they were rookies. They might have been thinking, and now we are, we're not only unprepared, we're here all by ourselves. I mean, it wasn't like if they had any questions, they could just call Paul in their cell and say, hey, so-and-so just asked me a really tough question. Or what do you do about this in this new church that you just kind of left behind? And remember that Priscilla and Aquila were also aware of something else which might upset their Jewish friends, probably their only friends in that new place, who kind of gave them the boot from the synagogue a little later. And that that thing that they knew that would upset these Jews was that the gospel was for the Gentiles too, which wouldn't sit well with their Jewish friends. And it was completely evident during their time in Corinth with Paul. What I want us to see here is that these two, Priscilla and Aquila, decided to be faithful when they probably felt they were not as ready as they would have liked to have been. They decided to stay in a place that even their mentor was not willing to stay and did not even promise to come back. And yet they faithfully served as best as they could, rightfully feeling that the task was maybe too big for them. And God used them in huge ways. Not only does the next account, which we'll deal with next week, um, that talks about their sharing the the full gospel with Apollos, uh, which ended up having a huge impact on that church, but even on the Corinthian church. He became a mighty speaker. Imagine being the one who led Billy Graham to the, to the Lord. Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, not too far off. They, they, what they did, while they knew that they were in over their head, they stayed there and worked, doing what they could, and the result was... When Paul did end up returning, he came to an environment that had been cultivated and cared for, and there were even some other believers there when Paul came. And then things really took off in the church of Ephesus, one of the most important churches in our history. These two are rightly heroes of our faith, and they were very courageous, and they're worthy for us to look up. And and the truth is, while Paul is credited with starting the church in Ephesus, I kind of take my hat off to these two who were unprepared, baby Christians, in over their head, and who were faithful. Finally, I want to look at the end of our text. To do so, I'm going to have to read uh, from verse 20 again. And please follow with me, chapter 18, verses starting in verse 20. When they asked him to stay a little longer with them, he did not consent. 
but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. What I want us to get out of this is what it tells us about decision-making. Let's, let's put this in perspective. Paul is on a missionary journey. He's prepared to engage and minister to Jews, the haircut. We talked about that. He ends up in Ephesus, which is not his destination, to meet some Jews. And they're listening to him. And they're even responding positively. And they want to hear more. And they even ask him to stay. Sounds like good fortune. Sounds like he should stay. Maybe just a little longer, doesn't it? It makes sense to stay. Doors seemed to be open. People were responding to him. But he says, no. Instead, he leaves the rookie Christians to deal with the brand new ministry. And he says, if the Lord wills, he might return. And that was not a promise to return. Shouldn't he stay? The Jews were, were seemed to be open to listening to him. He comes and kind of turns the world upside down preaching the gospel, and there's a positive response. And Aquila and Priscilla, well, we kind of talked about that. They weren't really prepared. The point is that Paul was being faithful to what he knew he was supposed to do, and he was being led by the Lord rather than the circumstances. And I'm going to repeat that. Paul was being faithful to what he knew he was supposed to do. And he was being led by the Lord rather than being led by the circumstances. Many of you know that I published two books. Um, the experience with the first one was really exciting. God did amazing things, opening doors, allowing me to present the gospel in places I never even dreamed I could be. My job was to be faithful and to hold on as the Lord led me in. And while I stayed on course, kind of like Paul's determination to get to Syria and his home church, amazing things happened. On my second book, I decided to be led by the circumstances, not by the Lord. I had the momentum. I had an audience. I even think I had a better written book. And I had experience. It made perfect sense me to do what I did. But I did not seek the Lord. I did what made the most sense to me. I read the circumstances, and I did not listen to the Lord, and it did not turn out well. It was a financial disaster. Paul was determined to do what he knew he was supposed to do, which for him was to get to Caesarea, then Syria, then his home church. And because he did... God used him to proclaim the gospel and strengthen the brethren in two other very important regions, while God did use Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus without him. The point, stay on track. Stay on track. Be led by the Lord, not the circumstances. No matter how good, no matter how bad, stay on track. God has a plan, and He, not we, is in control. 
and He will accomplish what He intends. We just need to be faithful. So as I wrap up our, our review of this little text, and those lessons candidly came out to me. I mean, it's not what I saw in my first reading. But as I, as I wrap up the review of this morning's text, let me go back and highlight some things. The, the first is, God does amazing things, even if at times they are not even on our agenda, such as what happened when Paul stopped over in Ephesus on his way home, headed somewhere else. And what eventually happened was beyond anything he could have imagined. God does that with us. Second, we need to cut our hair. We need to cut our hair. What I mean by this is that we need to be willing to subordinate our rights. We need to be willing to do things that might be unnecessary and seem totally meaningless to us if we want to be able to clearly proclaim the message of Jesus to those whom God has placed us in the midst of. Now, I can't tell you what that means for you. That's something that you and God need to work out. But I can tell you that we do need to cut our hair. And I can tell you that our desire should be to make Jesus known. And anything that gets in that way may need to be set aside. The third is the lesson from Aquila and Priscilla. That God can do mighty things and use you in ways you cannot even imagine. Even if you feel completely unprepared, even if you are unprepared, if you remain faithful and do what you can with what you got. These two did, and it really isn't too much to say that they changed the world. The fourth lesson from today's text is that we need to stay on track and be led by the Lord rather than let circumstances, again, good or bad, direct our decisions and our direction. I want to um, go back once again and state why we're doing this study. The church in Ephesus, about whose origin we just read, I mean, those came right out of the beginning of the church. And this church who will become one of the most important dynamic places in the New Testament with more teaching and stuff happening than almost anywhere else in the New Testament as far as the Timothy and John and the Acts stories and all that. It was a very special place with wonderful things that happened there. And yet, as we saw last week, that wasn't enough. The issue is they took their eyes off of Jesus. So as we go forward, I hope that we learn from these believers. I hope we do. I mean, those are good lessons today. I'm, they were lessons for me. But more so, I hope we also remember, above anything else from this sermon series, to never, ever lose our first love. Never take our eyes off Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would guide and direct us 
that you would help us be led by you, that you would give us the courage to do what you've called us to do, whether we feel prepared or not. Lord, help us to know what we need to do to be effective ministers for your kingdom. And Lord, help us to seize the opportunities, whatever they are, for the advancement of your kingdom and your glory. Never let us take our eyes off you. In Jesus' name, amen.